0: So you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. So you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out
3: Wednesday morning, uh, the 6th of September. Good morning, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, after the wettest summer in living memory, it really is a beautiful summer-like morning to take in the views at Avondale House. As you've been hearing this morning, that's where the government is, in County Wicklow, where it is about to hold its first Cabinet meeting of the new political term. There's much on the agenda and... Um, And the countdown is now truly underway to next month's budget. Ministers are to discuss local property taxes, RTE, a rebate scheme for businesses that use kerosene and pandemics. That's not the one just gone by. That's the ones coming down the line. But a major review of speed limits will make for a very interesting conversation. This is a review that was commissioned by Minister of State Jack Chambers and the government will be left with much to contemplate let's speak now to Blake Boland who's head of communications with AA Ireland and a very good morning to you Blake and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning if the recommendations in this are accepted it means there'll be no change to motorway speed limits they'll continue at 120 kilometres an hour and there will be some exceptions after that but generally speaking, you're talking about speed limits on all other roads reducing by about 20 kilometres an hour. It's pretty dramatic, isn't it?
4: Well, That's right, yes. And um... Motorways and national primary roads will will be unchanged. So we're going to see some other changes now. Towns and estates will drop down to thirty kilometers an hour. We're going to see secondary roads dropping from one hundred down to eighty, and some local and rural roads dropping from eighty down to sixty. But let's just be a little bit more clear in terms of context on this as well. These are there will be an opportunity. Let's put it that way for the local authorities to look at a particular road and say, Do you know what, even though. The limit has gone down to 80. We deem this one to be safe at 100 and they will maintain those speeds. So there is discretion involved here and it's not necessarily that we'll see every single road dropping like I just outlined.
3: Okay, but it will be recommended to to the councils that they do that, but then it will be up to the councils to decide finally on what the speed limit is. Will that be confusing for motorists going between counties?
4: Oh, it absolutely will be, and we're going to see a a lot of, you know, there'll be a lot of investment needed in this as well. There's going to be a lot of time. Now, in reality, we're not going to see this in place really until possibly the second half of 2024. I mean, legislation is going to put before the government um, this month, but it's going to take some time when they draw up the detailed guidance and not be ready with the, the actual legislation itself in early 2024. But it's a long time yet and there's going to be a lot of education needed by the government here to make sure that everybody understands what's going on.
3: Right. What is going on? uh, Because I think it could very well be argued that the reason for introducing this reduction in speed limits is because of a, a lack of education, because of a lack of driver education. And if we failed in that sense, are we going to succeed in teaching people how to abide by the new limits?
4: Yeah, well, they, they, this um, has been, been worked on for two years. We we heard um, Minister Jack Chambers speak this morning. They've been working on it for a long time. Now, initially, we thought perhaps is this a little bit reactionary um, because of, of what's happened over the last few weeks. But I think the reality here is that we're in a pretty bad situation on our roads, that road deaths are increasing, 127 this year already. And even beyond that, we've had 812 very serious road injuries last year. And this is these are mothers, fathers, colleagues, friends, family members that... Have, have lost their lives or, or have been very debilitating injuries. So I think we all also need to stand together and do whatever we can to reduce those those deaths and those fatalities.
3: Yeah, but uh, some people would argue that uh, at times the speed limits are actually too low and that they should be increased.
4: Well, I've heard that argument before, but when, when we look at the, the data on, on injuries and, and crashes and fatalities, there's a very, very clear correlation between lower speeds and been safer on the road. So some of us, and, you know, perhaps we've all been there, we've looked at a speed limit on a road and said, you know, I feel safer doing 20 or 30 more. But they are there for a reason. They do frustrate us sometimes, perhaps, but let's not lose sight of, of the ultimate goal there.
3: Okay. the big question, of course, I think is going to be enforcement, isn't it? I mean, if we're not enforcing the speed limits now, and that's leading to the amount of deaths that we've seen this year, Um, Are we going to enforce reduced speed limits?
4: Well, I'm glad you brought it up. And and I wanted to bring it up at some stage anyway. Like we take what what happened on Monday there. There was a national campaign um, to get us all to reduce our speeds. I mean, everybody in the country should have heard about this. And yet they still caught 865 drivers on Monday alone speeding during that campaign. The August Bank holiday saw something like 15 to 1600 people caught speeding. So even though everybody knows that the Gardaí are out there, um, they're still speeding. So we really do do need more enforcement of this. And this is one of our concerns with mm. these suggested changes, is are the necessary bodies being on guard of Siakana and a few others, are they going to have the necessary resources to actually police this, to be out on the road and to get this into people's heads that we're out here we're watching you and if you do speed you'll be caught because there's a large percentage of the population at the moment that don't believe they will be caught if they are speeding and continue to speed as we can see
3: and i don't think anybody would want to make little of the amount of people who have lost their lives on the roads this year over 40 people so far this year under the age of 25 127 people in total Uh, an increase of 25% on at the same period last year. But that has happened with the current level of enforcement. If the road uh, rules of the road were being enforced by the Gardaí, it's possible, I I suppose, that the 127 people who have died could still be with us today. Uh, And if that is the case or if some of those people could still be with us, then you have to ask yourself if we reduce the speed limits and those rules are not enforced, uh, will we see a reduction in road deaths? Uh, um, That's the first part of it. And the second part of it is that undoubtedly you'll see most people abide by the law because most people abide by the law as it stands. Uh, But what sort of... um, disruption is that going to cause? Uh, because you're going to see a, a, a much slower uh, travel times for people.
4: In theory, yes, we've reduced, you know, we might be reducing the maximum speed limits, but you know, I had a 50 kilometer journey this morning on, on the way into work, and a lot of that was on motorway as well. But on not a single occasion was I able to do the speed limit because there was a little bit of traffic there. So whether that speed limit was 100 or 200 kilometers an hour, my journey was the same anyway with traffic. Hmm. So what we're talking about really is just reducing that upper speed limit there that's there. And do you know what? I think in the context of so many people losing their lives and so many people being seriously injured, we have to ask ourselves, is it okay for my journey to take me 47 minutes instead of 44 minutes? And get there safely and potentially save someone's life mm. and as we said before it might be a little bit frustrating to you and I in a certain road yeah. um, or someone in front of us we don't feel they're going fast yeah. enough but let's bring it back to the to people that have lost their lives.
3: Well absolutely I mean I'd rather spend 47 minutes than 44 minutes if it meant saving a, a life but I think it's also reasonable to question uh, is that the only way of doing it? Uh, what better enforcement, better education, better training be the way to go so that people aren't acting dangerously on the roads because the problems that will come with reduced speed limits, uh, as you say, uh, at peak times, you may not be affected, but at other times there's going to be undoubtedly a a, a change in in, uh, travel times. You're going to see bus timetables, for example, having to be changed. Taxi fares will have to increase because there'll be longer journeys Uh, and undoubtedly you'll have traffic jams sooner, bigger and cars moving slower at times.
4: Well, you know, it's strange that you brought that up because um, conversely or almost uh, perversely sometimes what they do is they reduce the speed limits on motorways to get people to their destinations faster. And this is a very, very strange effect. Um, I didn't realize this until very recently, yeah. but we're seeing these kind of variable speed limits on the likes of the M50 at the moment. And what happens in, in bad tra- traffic very frequently is, is something that you, you could kind of call the accordion effect, where... Traffic loosens out, people speed up to 100 or 120 on the motorway, and then all of a sudden you get one person who's a little bit slower who's braked, and then you get that accordion effect where it squashes down. And if we could actually have a more consistent speed, although at a lower maximum speed, we can end up getting to our destinations a little bit bit sooner.
3: Yeah. What about trucks coming out of uh, the port in uh, the early hours of the morning when everybody else is tucked up tight in bed and making their way to Cork or whatever? I mean, their travel times are going to be reduced or increased, uh, and that's uh, going to have a, an impact. There's an impact on, on business and the cost of doing business.
4: Uh, potentially, a lot of the the trucks that you're referring to are, are limited to uh, to lower speeds anyway, so they they wouldn't be able to approach those a lot of the larger speeds, especially on on motorways that we're talking about. Um, I will have some some changes. Um, it, it will, and once again, it kind of just comes back to the the road safety aspect of it.
3: Hmm. What about frustration? Frustration can be uh, very dangerous uh, as well. Um, If you're driving around the town at 30 kilometres an hour, uh, maybe people listening to us uh, this morning who are are driving around uh, in one of uh, the towns uh, could try to reduce uh, their speed to 30. I think they'll find it very difficult to do it, Uh, and if you had to do it, or if the car in front of you was forcing you to do it, people could end up very frustrated, uh, and that could lead to separate problems, could it not?
4: Yeah, I suppose that, that that is possible. We all experience frustrations on the road, and, and some motorists are upset with other motorists or a uh, cyclist is upset with a bus or a bus is upset with a taxi and so on and so forth right throughout it. Um, and that's something that we all need to just keep an eye on a little bit, uh, keep an eye on our frustrations. Mm. Um, but also, you know, there's, there's a lot of focus on, on the speed that's here. Um, and we're, you know, this is the focus today because we're talking about speed limits potentially reducing. But also, let's not lose sight of... Speeding is just one of the, the problems, the issues that we have on the road that contributes to, to crashes and, and to fatalities. And, and we also need to be cognizant of the fact that drink driving is still an issue, that people are driving uh, when they're too tired, that they might be distracted on their mobile phones. There's a whole host of other reasons here as well that we have to we have to keep an eye on that say.
3: Mm-hmm. Overall, though, um, what's your thoughts? Uh, good idea. Uh, you'd like to see this happen?
4: Well, I think... In the context of what's happened over the last few weeks, you know, and we have we put out some of the statistics there and then just remember that these are all, all, all human beings, mothers, fathers. It, it becomes very difficult to argue with anything that's going to make our roads a little bit safer. However, we do have concerns, some concerns. You know, we highlighted some of those that this cannot be a, a cash grab where we reduce the speed limit on a road that is relatively safe and they put up a van. You know, we need to focus our efforts in the right way. And also, are the guard going to have the necessary resources to police this and that's one of our big things and as we spoke about earlier on the policing of it that's going to be hugely important in getting this through
3: Yeah, it's funny you say that because that's exactly what Tom said. Tom is in Kells, and he's texted us and he said speed limits, they're just a cash cow for the government. It's the standard of driving that has become worse. He he tells us that he was in Kells the other day sitting down at the Maureen O'Hara bus for five minutes waiting for a lift. He counted 22 people driving with their phone to their ear. I guess that's not much of a surprise to any of us. We see that all of the time. And then you've got to ask yourself, if you can't get people off the phone, how are you going to get them to drive at 30 kilometres an hour in the town?
4: Yeah, absolutely. The phones is a big issue, distracted driving. And it even goes beyond people just picking up the phone to answer a call or send a text. I mean, I know, I understand it's anecdotal, but we're hearing stories of people who have their phones displayed in the car, perhaps, you know, attached to a suction cup on the windscreen or something like that. And they're catching up on things like sports highlights or... Or their favorite programs, or there's a YouTube video playing in the background. Mm. This is just madness, and, and things like that really have to to stop. And your caller kind of touched on something, and you mentioned earlier on is is the, the cultural aspect of this as well. Mm. We've uh, we've got a whole new wave of young drivers coming through, as we do every year. And I even spoke to a, a different radio presenter recently, and and he was saying that he remembers doing interviews like this twenty years ago, saying and warning people about the exact same things. But we've now got a new generation coming through that haven't quite got that message as well. And we've seen those numbers in the the, the age profile yeah. of a lot of people losing mm. their lives
3: lately. Yeah, absolutely. I said it to Martin Kenny, uh, the transport spokesperson for Sinn Féin, uh, on this programme uh, the other day, because I remember uh, the exact same messaging myself on uh, radio 20 years a- a- ago. And uh, I know that what happened then when it was normal to have three, four, five, six hundred people die on the roads um, that uh, the Road Safety Authority was uh, introduced and they were very, very active in terms of messaging, constantly on radio programmes, big campaigns, all of the time. Uh, And there was a change in behaviour, change in attitudes uh, and a reduction in road deaths. Uh, The Road Safety Authority seems to have gone quiet uh, since uh, Eamon Ryan became the Minister for Transport. I don't know if that's right or wrong. That's my sense of it. Uh, And I don't know if it's coincidental or if there's any connection between uh, driver behaviour. Have you any thoughts on that, Blake?
4: It's not really for me to to speak on the relationship between the RSA and Minister Eamon Ryan. Um, The RSA are tasked with a very, very difficult job of reducing road fatalities. And, you know, as you mentioned there, we have seen them coming down in in numbers that that were a lot higher a good few years ago. So progress has been made. But um, I I think every party involved here needs to do a little bit more to, to, to get this down and concentrate, as we said, not just on one aspect, but the other ones we just mentioned and even the conditions of cars on the road as well making sure that people have the appropriate tyres, that they're not letting them go bald. Um, you know, we've got mm. AA vans out on the road doing breakdown rescues all the time and we're seeing some cars that are, are in less than ideal circumstances and they they need to be properly serviced with, uh, with a good mechanic to make sure that they're fully roadworthy as well.
3: Okay. Blake, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you uh, indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Blake Boland is Head of Communications with AA Ireland. I think there's probably arguments on both sides of this. Uh, I think many people will remember back in 2005 when we went from miles an hour to kilometres an hour and there was a reduction in speed limits uh, on a lot of the roads Uh, instead of doing 60 miles an hour you were doing 50 in other words 80 kilometres on roads that used to be 60 and I think we saw a reduction in road deaths then so perhaps uh, it is uh, a good idea but you're welcome to let us know a few people in touch with us already as I say Tom and Cal's giving out about people on mobile phones Vaughn and Navin saying good morning Michael within towns cities and residential areas There should be a limit of 30 kilometres an hour. I think they need to reduce residential areas like estates, housing estates, to 20 kilometres an hour or even less. Thanks, Yvonne. Right. Um, I'm not sure about that, Yvonne. Um, Maybe you're right. Maybe people listening to us uh, would agree with you. I think it would be very difficult uh, to be driving around an estate at 20 kilometres an hour. You probably need to be in second gear. Uh, Somebody else uh, then WhatsApping as as well saying, our speed limits or... Speeding the problem. The decrease is a cop-out for a lack of enforcement. Interesting. Thank you, indeed. Uh, somebody else then texting is saying, I'm a, a very careful driver, and at times I slip slightly over the 50 mark, and I, I can't see how the 30 is going to work. Thanks uh, for your message. Uh, John in touch too. He says, as I told you before, drivers have to have manners and cop-on. Thanks for that, John. Uh, I drive every morning, says another listener, every morning and every evening from Drogheda to Kill Moon Cross. Oh, God. Oh, God. I don't, uh, I don't envy you. don't envy anybody who goes to Kill Moon Cross. Anyway, our caller says, if you're on that road between half five in the morning and seven, you would think that you're in Mondello. All the years I've been driving on that road, I've never seen a speed check. Interesting, yeah. And again, that talks to enforcement. Thanks indeed for your message. If you'd like to make comment on the programme today, our telephone number is zero four one nine eight three two thousand. 2000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on
0: LMFM.
3: On LMFM. Yeah, talking about the speed that you drive at, uh, some 80,000 people went home on Monday and I'd say quite a lot of them couldn't get home quick enough to a proper shower. Uh, or two, <laughs> a nice, clean, hygienic toilet, let alone the comfort of their own bed. There's nothing like your own bed, is there? Uh, or some comfort food, real, proper homemade meal, that sort of thing. But that's part of the fun and the experience, the endurance test that was uh, the electric picnic uh, for 80,000 people today. The first of 750 Ukrainians are going to the Electric Picnic or at least the site uh, in Strad Valley, where the electric picnic was held to live in tents and to call those tents their home. John Lannon, CEO of Durris, is on the line. And a very good morning to you, John, and thanks indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, this seems uh, to be what refugees coming to this country can expect in uh, the coming weeks because of a, a lack of any other available accommodation for them. Do you believe it's the best we can do?
1: Good morning. Um, Well, first of all, we hope that this is only for a couple of days or weeks. Um, It's disappointing and I have to say surprising that the government has let the accommodation situation get away from them and has had to accommodate people in tents now. It's a crisis point, but it's not the first one we've seen over the last year and a half, Something similar happened at the end of student accommodation usage in 2022. We've had international protection applicants, street homeless at the start of this year, and we've had to. They had to start using tents for international protection applicants in mid-2022 as well. Um, the situation got so bad for them that they had to be moved out in December, and then others went back in in January. So we hope that when the government said that the use of flimsy very unsuitable tents in Strad Valley is short-term, that it really is, and it's only a matter of days or weeks until those people get moved to someplace more suitable.
3: And they're saying six weeks.
1: Indeed, yes, um, that, that's what's reported. Um, but um, I'd have to say that while, you know, um, getting to a safe country like Ireland may be better than a war zone, Um Living in tents is very unsuitable, really difficult. It's not a safe environment for anyone, and particularly for children. We have women and children moving into those tents already, and from people who have been to Electric Picnic over the weekend and who have seen those tents, they've said they're extremely um, cold
3: and and light and difficult for people Yeah, even at this time of the year but it's unusually warm for this time of the year we're having a a beautiful Indian summer after the terrible wet months of uh, July and August Uh, but in six weeks from now we're going into the middle, the end of uh, October and you can expect cold weather then and uh, the government had hoped to have even more tents at the ploughing championship
1: in, indeed, yes. And we, we have a bad track record here in this country when it comes to accommodation that's initially stated as temporary, becoming much more permanent. I mentioned the fact that tents are in use for international protection applicants at the moment in Knucklesheen outside Limerick City. Um, we've also, of course, still got the direct provision system that was sent up as a temporary solution to the arrival of people fleeing from persecution and war back in the year 2000. Yeah. Many of the locations um, that, that, that are non-tent um, that people from Ukraine and from other parts of the country are living in still are quite poor the standards are, are not great and there are concerns over the welfare of people because of conditions in the building or the lack of training of staff or other factors.
3: Mm. The bell tents uh, that people will know from the festival are to be used to house families. The Ombudsman for Children uh, has written to the government uh, voicing concern about children being accommodated like this uh, and probably with little wonder
1: absolutely you know we we know that um, any form of emergency accommodation for any children has detrimental effect on their development there are immediate and very um practical um concerns when people are in tents in congregated settings where there are others wandering around that are not known. Um, Spending a prolonged period of time in in tents like that means that it's extremely difficult, perhaps impossible, for the children to get to and from school, for people to get access to the other supports and services that they need. For example, many people need medical support and attention. Mm. How's that going to work if people are just trying to survive in tents?
3: Mm. 10,000 Ukrainians have arrived in the last four months. Uh, the rate that they're arriving in has uh, increased, uh, apparently, um, and undoubtedly that's putting pressure on the government. Ha- have uh, this ha- Has this happened? Uh, has it come as a surprise to the government? Have uh, they been uh, taken by surprise?
1: Well, we know that since... The um, full scale of invasion of Ukraine happened back the end of February 2022. There has been a steady arrival of people. The numbers are at about 500 a week now. Um, people are continuing to arrive as they need to because we see the ongoing situation in in Ukraine and how so many parts of that country are not safe for people. We we've. Um, got got a small, steady increase in the numbers of people that are being provided with accommodation by the state, although the numbers are... um Rising um, at a smaller rate in overall terms because some people are moving out into other accommodation from the state-provided accommodation. They may be returning to Ukraine. There may be other reasons why. But the numbers that they need to provide accommodation for are increasing. However, we've been saying and, and others have been saying for quite a long time now that we need to see better planning around the mid to long term options for the reception the accommodation and the integration of people from ukraine and the government as i said still hasn't got ahead of the fact that accommodation needs to be provided many of the mm-hmm. people who have arrived here from ukraine will make- Ireland, their home, and we need to be looking to the long term to ensure that not only can the children get into schools, people can learn English, they can um, get work, and and they can become part of Irish society, not living in flimsy tents in in a um, in in a site after a concert.
3: Okay, speaking of planning, uh, I think uh, there's a very interesting uh, story on the front page of uh, the Daily Mail today. Uh, of uh, how County Wicklow Council uh, Wicklow County Council uh, had sought to lease 1.2, uh, 1.82 hectares uh, of land in Baltinglass. Glass. Uh, they were hoping to put in enough modular homes there for 200 Ukrainians uh, but the councillors voted against it.
1: Yes, so um, as I said the, the government does need to put in place a plan and there is a role for local authorities on, on um, in all of this. Um, there is still an over reliance on hotels and on the hospitality sector as mm. well. So we do need to see more modular bills. We need to see more of refurbished buildings coming on stream. Local authorities that have the capacity to deliver should be given the power and the budgets to develop, to lease and to procure accommodation. This is something that's with us for the long term. We need to have a whole of government a whole of society approach to this to ensure that we can provide for people who are coming here seeking protection
3: mm. it, it, it's a uh, very disturbing isn't it uh, that Wicklow County Council has turned down uh, this uh, proposal that would have provided 68 modular homes very hard to understand.
1: It is difficult to, to understand and we know that the building uh, and the, the bringing on stream of modular units has been delayed time and again over the last year or more and it's disappointing that a lot more of those haven't come on stream. We've also know that there are, have been ongoing frustrations and communications difficulties as well when it comes to the interaction between um, local authorities and government departments. We hope that this is something that we can see an improvement in now. We hope that local authorities will start to play a more constructive role when they can. And it's not just that the responsibility here is not just on local authorities, because many of them have been working extremely hard to ensure that accommodation um, all accommodation that's available can be brought on stream also to ensure through their community response forward okay, that yeah. the integration needs are met. But we've got to ensure better coordination and better collaboration between local authorities and government departments yeah, uh, to address this. Uh,
3: indeed as uh, I understand it the councillors in Wicklow were giving out that uh, there was poor communication and they only heard of the plans last minute but we'll leave it there. Perhaps there's a lesson in that John. Thank you indeed as always for joining us. John Lannon, CEO of Duris.
2: Michael, Michael Reed
3: on LMFM. I don't know if you can imagine one of your children going to hospital today unnecessarily. Why? You might ask. Well, it's a, a good question. Could you imagine them going to hospital for 368 days? or 205 days, or 107 days. Uh, This was uh, the experience of some children who didn't need to be in hospital at all, according to a report that was published this week uh, by the Ombudsman for Children called Nowhere to Turn. In this report, it says that parents of some children with complex disabilities are making the agonising decision to leave their children behind in hospitals, residential centres, and special schools because They can't access the adequate supports and services that they need to care for them at home. Inclusion Ireland says it is saddened, shocked, but not surprised by the contents of this report. Let's speak to Dervil McDonough, who is the CEO of Inclusion Ireland. And a very good morning to you, Dervil, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I think a lot of us who are not familiar with uh, this circumstance uh, that the people you represent are, are f- so acutely aware of. We're very surprised. Uh, how commonplace is this?
2: Well, it's as we said in our in our statement yesterday, um, it's a shocking read. It's incredibly sad to read through the contents of the report. It is happening across the country. There is no doubt about that. And the sad thing is, it has been happening for for a decade at least. And in our view, and based on conversations that we're having across the country, it's becoming more and more of an issue and there's more of a prevalence of it. I mean, imagine, as you rightly said in, in your preamble there, imagine what it takes for a parent, a mother or a father, to be in that situation where they feel they have no choice but to go to their A&E or to leave their precious child in school one day and not come and pick them up because they literally have received no support for that child. And in 2023, what does this say about how we value disabled children and children who need support? I mean, there's a lot of children in that report, details, and absolutely they might require significant support to have a good life and a good quality of life. But that doesn't make them any less of a child. And yet the system has dehumanised them in every single way. So it is utterly shocking, but not surprising because we hear it all the
3: time. And if you take hospitals as an example, we're talking about children who are in hospital who don't need to be in hospital. But we're also talking about hospitals that don't have the wherewithal to care for these children. And that's leading to the hospitals being put in a situation where they're making difficult decisions. And you uh, are very concerned as well about what that means, because children end up being chemically restrained, drugged to the eyeballs unnecessarily.
2: That's exactly it. When there's no medical reason for a child to be there. But the reason that their family brought them there in the first place is that obviously the child is incredibly distressed in some way and the child's needs are not being met in some way. So whether that's their sensory needs, their emotional needs, there's something going on for that child. And the family have probably cried out for help and support for years on end before they take that difficult decision of going to hospital to seek for support. But of course, once the child is in there and there's no medical reason for the child to be there, all that that service can do, such as a hospital or a special school or a respite centre, is try and manage as best they can, taking the needs of all the other children who might be there into account as well. But it's completely unsuitable environment for any child to be spending a long period of time who have no medical reasons to be there. I mean, it's difficult enough, like we have parents that we work with every day, children have complex medical needs and do spend periods of time in hospital and that's so incredibly difficult for the family but at least there's a medical reason for them to be there Mm. in this case the only reason is that the state has not stepped in to provide the support that the child needs to have a good healthy life as part of their loving family.
3: And the Ombudsman makes the point that this is at odds with uh, the Constitution, at odds with the UN Convention on the Rights of uh, the Child and at odds with uh, the UN Convention on uh, the Rights of Persons with uh, Disabilities. Does that matter?
2: Well, it should matter and we should all be hanging our heads in shame. We've, We've signed up to the United Nations Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities in 2018 and that really sets out the state's obligations to value disabled children, disabled adults equally across the state, and to support them to have a good quality of life and to access their rights. And unfortunately, this is such a breach of those fundamental rights, and we should all deeply care. What I'm concerned about is that we often seem to lurch from scandal one scandal to another. So there will be an outcry for a day or two, and we'll hear it in the media and we'll we'll talk about it publicly and there'll be articles printed and then once that initial outcry dies away the situation is forgotten about again so we are really pushing for this to spur us on to action reading this report anyone any human who reads that report it should spur people to action we should be grasping that report and the recommendations within it and running with those recommendations and making sure that this does not happen to another child and another family. So we need to see action now. You know, we need to see follow-up from governments. We need to see a concrete plan to make sure that this doesn't happen to another child. And we need to see agencies working together, coming out of their own silos and recognising this is a child in front of them we need to work together to make sure that this does not happen to another child.
3: Okay, Dervil, I've run out of time. I have to leave it there. Thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us. Dervil McDonagh is CEO of Inclusion Ireland.
2: (laughs) Michael Michael Reed
3: Reed on on LMFM. Paddy Duffy in touch with us uh, texting us uh, about uh, the more than 800 people who were detected speeding on National Slowdown Day and how that day was publicised. He's wondering how many would have been detected if it hadn't been publicised. Margaret in Drogheda says there should be more speed ramps and built up areas and housing estates, especially at junctions. Ellen in touch, WhatsApping, saying a lot of these accidents are out on country roads. Yeah, some speed, uh, but the roads are in a terrible state. Maybe if uh, the Road Safety Authority looked at the real problems, it's hard to to keep your car roadworthy when you're hitting potholes. Thank you uh, indeed uh, for that, Ellen. Uh, Another message from Matty in RD, who says, Good morning, Michael. As you know, we had a foggy start the morning yesterday uh, while I was walking in RD town. I saw 15 cars go past me. Out of those, only three cars had any kind of lights on. Not one of them had fog lights on in 50 metres visibility. He says he found it to be shocking. Thanks for telling us, Matty. Our phone number, is Text or WhatsApp, 086 Email michael at lmfm.ie Now, next month, uh, the government will announce uh, the budget for 2024 and hopefully it will improve your life. What should the government do to improve the lives of women in this country? Well, the National Women's Council has as 10 priorities, or if you prefer, t- 10 top asks and we'll hear about them now Donald Swan is uh, the Women's Economic Equality Coordinator with uh, the Women's Council and he's uh, drafted their pre-budget submission Good morning Donald, thank you uh, indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today Uh, and I suppose there's a a lot of things that could be done to improve the lives of men and women in this country obviously your pre-budget submission is looking specifically at how women's lives can improve uh, and maybe you'd outline some of your your ten key asks if you would please
5: hi good morning Mike good morning Michael and thanks thanks for having me on um, yeah so the the national women's council um we we, 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 we published our, our 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 pre-budget submission for for budget twenty twenty four yesterday so our, our as you said we have top ten asks for for women in in how to make this budget a women's budget. Um, The first key ask that we have is in relation to um, building a, a, a universal public childcare model for Ireland. Mm. Um, so we're calling on the government to, to commit to delivering a, a universal public model of, of early years education and, and childcare uh, in Ireland and, and also to, in this budget to, to cut childcare costs for families by a, a further 25% um, which, which they committed to last year um, So because lack of affordable childcare is really yeah. the, the biggest barrier to, to women's equal participation. in But in, in you're talking uh,
3: about a Scandinavian style model, something like what, mm. uh, Joan Burton was talking about over a decade ago, and I think uh, her predecessor a decade before that.
5: One hundred percent, we are talking about that. We're talking about um, uh, an early years education and childcare model, which is yeah, which is which is state provided, which is uh, which is um, state funded, and I think international evidence has shown that that's the best way to both. Um, could cost and make it affordable for families, um, and also to ensure good conditions. and conditions um, um, for workers. Mm.
3: Um, I, well, it's so. not worth uh, a lot of women's time uh, to go out to work because of uh, the cost of childcare, uh, and I, I suppose a, a lot of families will tell you that it's one thing when you have one or two kids, uh, but uh, if you can afford childcare at that stage, uh, once you get Beyond that, it becomes very difficult.
5: One hundred percent. It's the the, the the childcare fees for for are in some cases astronomical, um, and in instances where you know in a lot of families on average women 's um, women 's incomes are lower than men, so when families are making the, the the decisions as to as to as to as to who stays in work and and who doesn 't it, it predominantly is um women who who are who are staying at home who are taking on the the unpaid um, care work and a lot of the cases that 's just because Childcare isn't isn't there. There aren't the places. It isn't accessible, or it just isn't affordable. Um, it's yeah. just it's just too expensive. And this isn't just stopping women from being active, in in, in being in, in you know in, in the labour market in terms of being employed, but it's also stopping uh, women's um, participation in terms of in terms of social and, and community life, um, and, and broader engagement with society, which is which is so vitally important.
3: Is it just because uh, of how unaffordable it is uh, that women, uh, because uh, they're earning less? decide to stay at home instead of men? Is it because of economic reasons or is it because women are more inclined to want to stay at home with their children?
5: Well, well, structurally, the unpaid, you know, the, the, the work that's been done in the home, the, the care work that's been done in the home... Has-
0: if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. for full important safety information visit juvedermcom
5: has has historically you know always to some degree fallen on, fallen on women and um, um, structurally and that's, 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 a, that's an element of kind of gender inequality in society and obviously everyone makes makes their own decisions um, but there is a structural setup which 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 means that that, that, that women are are, are are economically less well off they're, they're less they're less independent, and they're, they're they're less less able to engage in in society when when uh, when the disproportionate amount of, of kind of the, the child care burden yeah. falls on them. Um, so so having that access to to child care, affordable child care, and particularly a universal level of child care, where it's or it's accessible for all and um, you know those who those who have money but also and in particular and um, those in kind of marginalized communities like um and um, um, like migrants like like and mm. Roma, but also you know lone parents in particular um for whom for whom childcare is a is a particularly key issue
3: yeah and it's not some sort of pipe dream that is how life is for parents in those scandinavian countries uh, and uh, that is uh, commonplace uh, there. I don't know about you, Donald, but I, I was particularly taken aback by the Garda Commissioner last week or the week before when he was talking about the number of domestic violence incidents uh, that Garda will deal with this year, over 50,000 in, in the region of a 1,000 a, uh, a, a week. It, it's an incredible statistic and you're asking that the budget would be done, would, would do something to help women who are, are victims of domestic violence
5: yes um those those it, it, 126 reports of of domestic violence um every day to the Guardi is a, is an absolute epidemic of violence against women uh, in this country you know 261 women uh, have been killed violently since since 1996 in Ireland um The the government brought out um, last year in 2022 uh, a zero tolerance strategy um, uh, to domestic, sexual, and gender-based violence. Um, This provides a strong strong blueprint and a a roadmap for for achieving that aim of of really zero tolerance um, to violence against women and and girls. And what we're calling for in this budget is resourcing that strategy, um, dedicated funding um, which will ensure that it's implemented, Uh, And in particular, um, the government is committed to setting up a a domestic, sexual and gender-based violence agency, a statutory agency, in January 2024. Uh, And we're calling on that agency to be properly resourced so that it can support and provide funding to the frontline services Mm. Uh, who are who are supporting um, and women and supporting victim survivors, uh, um, who who are dealing with violence um, on on, a, on, a, on a, every, every day.
3: And that the judicial system would be changed in a way to support victims. Uh, you're also looking for an increase in social protection in line with a lot of groups. You're looking for uh, that to be increased to 25 euro. You want free contraception and IVF for all women. You want more support. For mental health. Another one of uh, the ten asks, or key asks as you put it, is uh, about child maintenance and the number of uh, lone parents who aren't getting any maintenance from their partners, from the child's fathers I take it.
5: Yes, um, and um, in the current system that that we have the um, the onus is on uh, is on is on the, the the woman to to follow up and to 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 get that maintenance from the other partner, which in in many cases is 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 not just is not just impossible, but can be can be dangerous. And um, so, what we're calling for is the establishment of a of a statutory child maintenance agency, um, where the state assumes the, the the liability and assumes the responsibility um for ensuring that that maintenance is, is is paid um and and this is this is this is a really important um you know measure in protecting against poverty and, and particular you know for, and, and, and poverty poverty uh, for for women um because you know where where child maintenance is a reliable source of income there there can be a significant reduction in the in in, in the in the poverty gap but for, for so many women in Ireland today, it just isn't a reliable source of, of, of income. So so mm. establishing a statutory agency would remove child maintenance from, from the adversarial court system uh, and reduce the burden on, on, on women to have to to litigate to go to court for child maintenance orders and instead encourage the state to take an, an active uh, a role in ensuring that maintenance is paid. Uh,
3: I probably should have mentioned, Donald, when we were talking about domestic violence, uh, how that can lead to other problems. And there was a, a report yesterday from uh, the Mercy Law Resource Centre, which highlighted how many women who have been the victim of uh, domestic violence end up homeless. Uh, but uh, that feeds into another one of your 10 key asks, which is calling on the government to do something about the hu- housing crisis.
5: Yes. Um, and and I, think, I, think, I think we all know at, at, at what level and scale that the, the housing crisis is, is, is now. It's, it's really across the entire society. But it does have a particular impact on, on women. Um, in particular, since since March, so since the, the lifting of the the eviction ban, um, um, which we're calling to, 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 for to be, to be reintroduced, there of the families who were who have been made homeless since then, seventy um, percent of them are lone parent families. Lone parent families, one parent families, are, are predominantly headed by women. So what we're seeing more and more is. Is, is the impact of, of, of women's homelessness and, and, and homelessness on on on, on women um, in, in relation to 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 domestic violence as as, as well as you were saying? And um, we don't have there are nine counties in in, in Ireland where we don't have uh, a domestic violence um, refuge. We don't have domestic violence refuge accommodation units, uh, and and we're calling on on the government as well to 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 meet our our. Our international commitments uh, under the Istanbul Convention in relation to to refuge space, um, and to ensure that there is there is refuge space for women um, right across the country in every county. Um, and for those who, who 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 need it as a, as a result of the Okay,
3: on. I wish we had more time, Donal. Uh, there are other issues like transport with women driving the kids to school and Irish dancing lessons and football matches and all of that, and uh, making public transport more available and uh, doing something to make women. Uh, feel more comfortable participating uh, in uh, certain uh, things, uh, but we have to leave it there for the moment uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Donald Swan is uh, the Women's Economic Equality Coordinator for the National Women's Council of Ireland who drafted the pre-budget submission for the Women's Council. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. on LMFM Very interesting text from Sean in Dundalk about speed limits uh, he's wondering about the signs Uh, to implement the law will all the signs need to be changed accordingly all over the country I presume so, Sean. Uh, interesting. Hadn't thought of that. Uh, somebody else uh, WhatsApping saying driving requires a lot of common sense. When you see somebody overtaking, coming into a bend, that makes no sense. Thank you for that as well. And we'd somebody else saying no uh, mention of psychology or attitude or ego, and not to mention the everyday frustrations, mani- frustrations manifesting on the roads. You only have to see how drivers behave in four courts, and that's before. they get out onto the road thank you indeed for your message to the programme if you have been in touch. Now there's been a a lot of concern about uh, the British Legacy Bill or the Northern Ireland Troubles Legacy and Reconciliation Bill as it's uh, formally titled uh, because it's to give uh, an amnesty to anyone who committed a crime during the Troubles I I think uh, the general consensus is that the objective is to give uh, an amnesty to members of the British forces who committed crimes during the Troubles. Uh, There was an interesting twist in this yesterday in the House of Lords because an amendment was uh, uh, proposed and indeed supported by a majority of 11. And that means that if you are to give an amnesty to somebody, it would be with consent from the families of uh, the victims. The vote there was 201 to 190. Let's uh, speak to Mark Thompson, who's uh, the CEO of Relatives for Justice. A uh, very good morning to you, Mark, and thanks for joining us on uh, the programme. I suppose truth told, that's only half the story, isn't it?
6: I suppose it is. In, in fairness, what the House of Lords have tried to do is to remove the immunity clauses, the amnesty provisions in this bill, and there's been a battle of what they call political ping-pong between the House of Lords and the House of Commons, where ultimately the Conservative Party holds the majority and will pass this. And every time it comes back from the Lords, they kind of remove any changes. The truth is, it's a bill that's been irredeemable in some senses because the objective, as you quite rightly say, has always been to get British soldiers off the hook, its agents and so forth. And I suppose in this Immunity Clause this amnesty Bill, all a person has to do is to turn up and give an account to the best of their recollection um, of what they were involved in, um, and there's no real test to it. So if it's they it's turn up and get your immunity provision, and there's no no prizes for guessing that that will be British soldiers principally and anyone else connected to the state, whether they're in paramilitary organisations working for the state or otherwise. Mm. So that's really what we said. I suppose what was interesting this week as well is, is that uh, the uh Micheal Martin, has indicated yet again that the Irish government is seeking legal advice. And I suppose this centres around the fact that this bill is going to pass and it is going to go into law. All of the diplomatic efforts that have been tried, all of the pressure has been tried from the US, from Europe, from the Human Rights International Organisations, from the UN to the Committee of Ministers of the Council of Europe, and the, importantly from the families and the political parties, but the British government are tone deaf to this, they don't want to know, and they've set their faith against passing this bill. So in that context, it's quite important that the Irish government stand up for all victims across this jurisdiction, and, and that they initiate an interstate case against the UK. That would mean, Michael, that they would go and seek an interim resolution before the European Court under Rule 39, and that would mean that as This bill is, in a systemic way, affecting so many people that they could seek an interim resolution that would protect the interests of all those people that will be affected by the bill. Mm. That's the first stage, and that can be done quite quickly in an interstate challenge before it hears more substantial stuff. And if the court were to grant on the application that the Irish government were to take, an application, they would grant um, protection of all the rights of those individuals, which would be internationally legally binding, uh, against the UK, which would mean this bill would, would, would have to sit and the court would, would, would have to um, adjudicate And mm. but it would preserve and protect the rights in the meantime Um, uh, uh, before a, a substantial hearing at a later stage. like the UK can obviously go ahead and do what it wants, but mm. then you're looking at the international reputation and the diplomatic fallout that would, would happen thereafter. Well, I was just but going to ask
3: this. you. I was just going to ask you if the British government would respect such a, a ruling, and I suppose the follow-on question now is if uh, the British government is at all interested in its international reputation.
6: Well, there are matters. Debates, but I think there there is, um, and and of course they're acting within their own jurisdiction currently, ignoring everything. But when it comes before the international court, it's a bit somewhat different. I do I I do think so, um, and 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 there would be I, I would suppose supporting affidavits and, and interventions on this and submissions because in, under Rule thirty nine NGOs like ourselves, but but um, importantly members of the US Congress and the Senate who have held hearings on this international legal experts so it becomes a body of public international opinion not only from legal experts and academics but ngos and families so it built it takes it to a different level and if the irish government do that i i i, I think it's an indication of the commitment to victims and survivors across the entire community and standing up for their rights, which is crucially important. That has mm. to be done. And we can't allow a situation where the UK just acts unilaterally and gets away with what it wants to do in terms of just acting as a uh, judge, jury and executioner and, and, and as high, high as it's behaving. And people have rights and rights after the good Friday agreement. Who wants to be in a society where your rights are... Are completely denied. We we have to stand up and fight for our rights and our human rights. Right. And we have no choice. The Irish government, as part of the a signatory to the Good Friday Agreement, that affords and accords those rights, hmm. uh, have to protect that agreement and the rights of citizens and as part of the jurisdiction.
3: Uh, and there is no doubt, is there, that uh, the British government is going to proceed as planned if this is not challenged. Uh, And the clock is ticking down. There's little time, realistically, to put in such a a challenge. Uh, This will become law in May of next year.
6: Well, it it could, well, technically, it'll pass this week uh, within the Parliament. It'll go for royal assent. We're hearing it could be as as quickly as October. Um, But but we'll have have to wait and see. But but, but importantly, they're going to go ahead and do that. Mm. Uh, once this, once it comes in the statute in terms of law within the UK then the Irish government will then um, hopefully take the interstate case uh, that, that, that's where we're at that's, there's no question now that it's that it's going to be pulled at the last minute. That's, that's just not going to happen. Mm. It's just going to have to go to the, the European court. And the important element of the government doing it, the, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the Leon Frasgaard and the Martin leading this and doing it, is in an interstate case, um, where a state takes another case to, to another uh, country to the, the European court, it, it, it's expedited quite quickly. Um, whereas if finally seek interim from resolution. It takes much longer. So, so there are a series of cases that will go forward. Um, test cases. It, it is because the it will build into it the systemic impact that this has right across the board, and and, and, and thereafter, then hopefully that the, the court would give it resolution, which binds the UK not to move forward and violate the rights of the citizens. So. But but we really need the Irish government to lead on that. Mm. And it's, it, it's all the indications thus far is that they're going to do that, which is really encouraging. And, and, and it is a move to protect rights, to protect human rights, to stand up for victims of all persuasions and of all religions, uh, irrelevant of who the perpetrators were. This is a human rights universal issue for everybody. And we have to get it right. And we can't come out of a conflict where rights were violated. And then we have a government 25 years later uh, in, in the form of the UK that's just going to say, well, we give a blanket on to everyone, because we don't want to be held to account for anything that we did. And we just, in doing that, we just shut everybody down. The right to be an investigation, mm. the right to be an inquest, the right to be a police ombudsman's report, the right to take civil litigation. It's on parallel mm. in, in, the, in the democratic world. There's no other situation in the democratic world where um, victims... Uh, who had relatives murdered, or people who were uh, were maimed, do not have any rights for redress or remedy. It's right. just completely unsustainable.
3: Okay. Um, in the coming weeks, then you're talking about this becoming law, and that would end any civil litigation. It would end any inquests. Uh, it would end yep. any inquiries, would it?
6: it? All of that, and 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 what 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 was done in a very disingenuous way. Is that there were quite a number of inquests before the courts in Belfast, and in the initial draft bill, uh, well, the bill had which had gone through, it had said that any any inquest that had reached what was known as a, a substantial stage would would continue, uh, but any inquest that hadn't by um, May 2024 would be closed, and in an exercise, I suppose, of due diligence. The, a number of high court judges that are hearing these inquests got together and they, they kind of looked at their listing and they tried to expedite the hearings to insulate them from um, the worst effects of this bill. And in doing so, they kind of they reprimand, reprimanded the PSNI and the MOD for their failure to provide information because... It seemed to be that they were dragging their heels as well. They were dragging their heels. Mm. And so in the context of that, Lord Keane, in the amendments uh, a few months back, he said that um, he actually used the term because the courts had had recognized this and sought to move quickly to address these and hopefully have these inquests concluded. I'm changing the law now to say that any inquest by May 2024 that is not concluded waiting on a verdict will be closed. So that's mm. how Billy, this is deemed, so and I think mm. it gives you a true indication of just the nature of what's intended here. Mm. And it really is uh, to pull the shutters down and expose, uh, to stop any exposure particularly of the the, the British Army and the RUC's activities during the course of the conflict.
3: And people might have some hope uh, following a a general election, because I don't think anybody wants this uh, other than the British government, uh, and uh, there is hope uh, that a a Labour government, if uh, Keir Starmer was to win the next uh, election, would repeal the law. Uh, But, I mean, you wouldn't start up an inquest that has been shut down very easily, would you? Well,
6: First of all, when Keir Starmer was in Belfast at the Queen's University um, some time ago, he was asked by a leading law academic his view on the bill and, and what would happen if he were to get into power. And he did say in Belfast that he would repeal the legislation. Uh, and I think that's encouraging. And, 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 and if there is a change of government, that that's something to look to as well. But I think the choreography. The, the, the geography of all of this in the sense of the, is the Irish government going to take the case and there is a change of government in London well then it brings us back to the original agreement of the Stormont House Agreement to which the NIO and the security apparatus in the north here and in London didn't want to implement mm. and I, I suppose it's a, it, it, and the microcosm of this is the, the Patronukin case whereby there was a promise of an inquiry and then a, they were on it uh, they give other inquiries, uh, but didn't give one in the Pats case, and then they changed the law to the the Inquiries Act in two thousand and five, which prohibited um, inquiries being far more far-reaching uh, and give ministers much more powers. To, uh, to prevent the exposure of information, and they didn't hold an inquiry. And the Finocens have won at the UK Supreme Court. They've won again in Belfast at, at, at the High Court. And, and, and what you see here is a refusal uh, to deal with that case because it's so far-reaching and goes to the higher echelons of the security apparatus and people in government at the time. And if you have an independent process that you can't control, well, then you run the risk of the being coming to light. And that's really what this is about. It's about the UK and the Tory government in particular um, with the security apparatus behind them advising them, don't do this, don't do that, um, close this down. And this bill Mm. is really an amalgamation of every deceitful tactic that's been used against families for the past two decades in the courts in Belfast and at the UK Supreme Court to bury evidence, to prevent the truth from emerging. And it's really about trying to control the narrative of the conflict but in doing so they've exposed themselves because otherwise why would you need such a far reach amnesty mm. if you didn't do anything wrong as they
0: claim
3: Okay, Mark we'll leave it there for the moment thank you as always for joining us today Mark Thompson is uh, the CEO of Relatives for Justice <laughs> Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. It has stunted my life. That's the headline over an article in the Journal.ie where readers have been sharing their experiences of adults living with their parents. Let's hear more about some of the incredible stories that the Journal has recorded. Mairead McGuire is a news reporter with the Journal.ie. Good morning, Moraid, and thank you indeed. Uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today. You decided to reach out to listeners because of uh, the last census and that amazing figure of over half a million adults in this country who live with mum and dad.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I suppose we just
7: wanted to know what exactly that looks like for people. Um, To be honest, I kind of thought that we, we would get a lot of responses but that they would... Maybe be more, this isn't ideal, you know, but we're hoping to move out soon, um, etc. But it was actually quite different and a lot of stories were quite serious and people spoke of it ruining their marriages, their mental health and their relationships with their parents or their parents-in-law.
3: Mm, falling out with their in-laws probably forevermore. more. I, I, I gather reading between uh, the lines of uh, one of uh, the stories, uh, but uh, cramped conditions, housing that's not uh, suitable for so many uh, adults, I, I suppose, was a common enough theme. Uh, in uh, the stories that you heard from your readers. Uh, One uh, telling you about living with uh, their in-laws when they were pregnant. That seemed to be going all right until the baby came and then they said it was a living nightmare.
7: Yeah, I mean, I suppose you can see how that would change things drastically. Um, But, I mean... I suppose nobody goes into that thinking that it's going to be a nightmare, but um, it can be very hard to know before you get into that situation. And look, it's not just in Dublin, it's across the country. Um, People are not only struggling to get on the property ladder, but even just to get somewhere to rent. Even people who have the money, they just simply aren't places. Mm. Um, You know, the average rent for new tenancies in Ireland has risen by over 9% in the last year. So things are getting worse, not better. Um, So who knows what the figure will be in the next census, but it likely will be a lot over half a million um, because that seems to be the only option for some people at this point.
3: Were you surprised, Mairead, at how old some of uh, these adults are uh, who are living with their parents?
7: Yeah, maybe I shouldn't have been, but, but I was. I think traditionally we think that um, if somebody is living with their parents as an adult, it it might be for a little while in their in their twenties or if they're between places or things like that but you know one reader um, he's in his late thirties and um, he is thinking about emigrating for the second time because when he moved back to Ireland um, he ended up having to live with his parents while he was completing his PhD mm. and he also um, knows someone else in his family who is moving back in with, with their parents um, and that person's in their forties so um, yeah it's I mean, it's incredible to think that there were people who were emigrating during the last recession and then came back kind of with the hope that that was the end of it, but are now looking to go away again to places like Vancouver or, um, I mean, lots of people obviously are going to Australia um, and even London, um, which you think would be extremely expensive as well. But I suppose the difference is at least there actually are places to rent Mm. there. Yeah.
3: all right uh one of your readers thirty seven years of age uh, and that's old enough uh but two older siblings living in the same house with that person along with their elderly father,
7: yeah, I mean that's uh, several generations in the one household um you know some people are very lucky to have big homes and um plenty of space for everyone um not that that's even that easy either, but um yeah, there I think there's also things like for example, one reader um they were kind of finishing their house um sort of down the road from where their parents are living so it was it was convenient for them to live with their parents because otherwise they would have had to rent somewhere maybe an hour or two away. Um but yeah, whenever it's temporary, I think people do find it somewhat tolerable mm. but then um, whenever you have several generations under the one roof, and there's things like caring responsibilities that add so much more strain, and and as you say, like then if there's babies, all these things put so much pressure on relationships and on a household.
3: Yeah, um, you heard from uh, one younger reader who said the government had stripped uh, the youth of this country of their right to a life uh, because it's impossible. Uh, to have a a real life or intimate relationships or any of the things that adults normally do when you're living with your parents but that same person also told you about their uncle who's in his 40s living with their grandparents
7: Mm -hmm. yeah and it will be interesting to see how this manifests in the next election um you know i mean we're always we're always talking about the housing crisis and and so we should be and, and people are always giving their, their two cents on how we can solve this. But um, clearly what has been done so far hasn't improved things if we only see rent prices going up and the supply going down. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's it's, it's I think there is a lot of anger there. Um, mm. A lot of people also are concerned with um, the way conditions like this, where there's no housing, how that can... Kind of manifest into other things like like the rise of the far right, um, because people have been have been sort of sitting with their rage for so long, and it feels like nothing's changing. And then whenever we have you know immigrants coming in, sometimes people jump to kind of feel that they shouldn't be sharing resources with other people because they don't have enough themselves. Mm. Um, so we can see how that can become like extremely problematic and dangerous and it has, um, mm. particularly in Dublin.
3: Absolutely. And uh, I suppose then there's the next question that people ask themselves, uh, is there actually no housing? Because uh, you heard from somebody in Tipperary who made the point that there's lots of empty homes, derelict homes, holiday homes, and Airbnb's, but only two rental properties in their area?
7: Exactly, and you know, there, as well as that, I think a lot of places that are available might be, you know, much too big. Like it's, I think sometimes, especially for like young single people, it it feels like the the market is just not made for them. as you say as well, there are so many empty places. I mean, you know, for for years now, there have Mm. been calls to really tackle the dereliction issue and to really put everywhere to use. Um, But
8: that, for the most part, hasn't happened.
3: Mm. Uh, A couple living in his uh, bedroom, I think, his childhood bedroom, uh, which uh, they said was only fit for a single bed, not a, a double bed. They eat there, they watch television there. Uh, they study there because uh, they're both pursuing master's degrees and it's having a terrible impact uh, on their mental health. But somebody else told you that they can't go home or they won't go home or, or they shouldn't be asked to go home because it, it's a toxic environment.
7: Yeah, look, some people feel that no matter how dire the situation is, they, they really, really can't go home because perhaps it's a toxic environment or even even a dangerous one. Um so the housing crisis is making vulnerable people even more at risk of mental illness or harm or just a lack of autonomy, which isn't good for any grown adult um it's It's pushing people into situations that maybe they tried very hard to escape from and I think also when you think about you know domestic violence situations or just separation, it's very hard for somebody to leave someone whenever they there's literally nowhere else they can go mm. um so it's just ex-
3: extremely dangerous. Yeah. Well, There's no doubt, uh, I take it uh, from reading uh, your article, Mairead, uh, that there's a, a lot of people who feel there's a, a disconnect between their generation and uh, the government, uh, which has failed them in respect of uh, being adults uh, and uh, the life that they should be entitled to, to live independently uh, as adults rather than at home with their parents. But it wasn't all bad news, was it? Uh, you heard from one parent, Uh, who described it as a a bit of a holiday.
7: Yeah, look, now the vast majority of the stories were negative or extremely negative, but um, it was good to get the perspective as well of parents who have their adult children living with them. So, yeah, one parent um, said that she was very happy to have her, I believe her daughter and um, her son-in-law stayed with them for a few months um, while their house was being completed down the road, and she said it was grand, um, that, you know, she liked having people around, especially after the pandemic. It was nice to have a bit of company and um she didn't mind kind of doing cooking and cleaning and stuff. I think um in fairness it was probably a situation where um it it probably suited everyone and um it it sounds like the, the couple weren't, you know, paying any rent or anything like that either. So I think um I think everyone was happy there. Um but as I said, that was kind of the exception to the stories that I
3: heard. OK, well, I found it fascinating reading uh, and uh, I, I was just uh, happy uh, not to be in that position. Uh, it's not a, a country, I think, some young people would say uh, to uh, live in um, once uh, you look at the idea of providing accommodation for yourself. Mairead, thank you indeed uh, for joining us to tell us about some of uh, those stories. People can read it in the journal.ie. It has stunted my life. Readers of uh, the journal sharing their experiences as adults living with their parents. Mairead McGuire is a news reporter with the journal. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual around this time on a Tuesday, uh, we're a day uh, but time nonetheless for the Garda Crime Desk, uh, where, as usual, we have a number of incidents. Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda, Laura Rutten of RD Garda Station joins us this week for the report. And we're going to begin with a burglary that happened in More
8: Good morning, Michael. Yes, Sigardi in Dundalk, Garda Station, are investigating this incident where a house, which is currently unoccupied, was broken into and copper pipes and a copper cylinder were taken. This happened sometime between 12 midday on Tuesday the 29th of August and 8am on Wednesday the 30th of August. Entry to the house was gained through the front door where the lock was broken. No other damage was caused. But if anyone was in the area at the time and may have seen anyone acting unusual or any uh, unusual vehicles in the area, please contact the Dock Garda Station on 042 938 8400 or the Garda Confidential Line on 1800 666 111.
3: And we go to Dunboyne in County Meath uh, for a, a burglary that occurred there on Friday evening just gone by.
8: Yes, this happened on Friday the 1st of September between the hours of 3.30pm and 5.30pm um, in the Warringstown, Dumbine, County Mead area. The Guardian and Dumbine Garda station are investigating this break-in where a house owner returned home to find their house ransacked. All the rooms had been gone through. Entry to the property was gained through the bathroom window and the culprits left entry through the back door. Cash, an impact drill and keys to a vehicle were taken during this break-in. Again, if anyone was in the Warrenstown area of Dunboyne at this time and may have seen anyone acting unusual or, again, any unusual vehicles around the area, to please contact Dunboyne Garda Station on 825 2211 or the Garda Confidential line on 1800 666 111.
3: That was Dunboyne on Friday evening. A very similar story then in Navin the following day on Saturday the 2nd.
8: Yes, like again, unfortunately, a similar burglary occurred on Saturday the 2nd of September in the Haystown area of Navin County Mead. Um, this happened between 10.30am and 4pm. Again, the homeowner returned home at 4pm to find their house had been ransacked. Entry to this house was through the kitchen window, where it, which had been prized open. A quantity of jewellery was stolen during this burglary. Again, if anyone was in the area at the time, noticed any unusual vehicles or persons around the area, please contact Nav and Garda Station on 046 907 9930 or the Garda Confidential Line again on 1800 666 111.
3: Okay, we go to Drogheda next and uh, the Dunor Road uh, where a woman got uh, the fright of her, her life. Uh, this happened last Thursday.
8: Exactly, yeah. This was a very frightening incident for the female involved. The Guardian Drada Garda Station are investigating this, where a female was crossing the road at the Tesco Extra on the Dronal Road Drada when a vehicle sped up as they approached her, forcing the female to jump out of the way. The female luckily did not sustain any injuries, but is very shaken by the incident. This incident happened at 9.45am on Thursday morning. So there's meant to be some people around the area. If anyone's seen this happen or seen any vehicle driving erratically in the area may have some dash cam footage to please contact Drogheda Garda Station on 041 987 4200 or the Garda Confidential Line on 1800 666
3: 111. A robbery to report on next in Drogheda. This happened on Saturday night at a very busy shop on Hardman's Gardens.
8: Yes, um, there's actually two, uh, two robberies that happened on Saturday, the 2nd of September, both just seven minutes apart. So the first robbery occurred at 9.40pm at McDonald's Centre, Hardman's Gardens in Andrada, where a person entered the shop, approached the till and showed a knife to the shop assistant and demanded money from the till. The person working in the shop ran out the back door. The suspect then left the shop. It is believed the suspect travelled on a bicycle then towards Scarlet Street. The suspect was described to Gardaí as wearing a black jacket with hood up and it had black fur around the rim of the jacket. They were also wearing black tracksuit bottoms and black runners and a balaclava. So very distinctive looking there. If anyone was in the area at the time, seen a person matching this description or acting extremely unusual around the area, to please contact Drogheda station on 041-987-4200. Again, the Guard confidential line on 1-800-666-111.
3: All right, so that was 20 to 10. Within 10 minutes, there was another robbery at a Chinese takeaway.
8: Yes, this was only seven minutes later and um, possibly the same suspect involved. This incident of the robbery occurred in the Oriental Takeaway on Crush Road Avenue, Dratada. Again, a uh, person entered the Oriental Takeaway wearing all black clothing and again tried to Gardaí as wearing a jacket with a uh, four trim around it. Um, they produced a knife and demanded staff to hand over the money, which the staff did. Again, if anyone was in the area may have seen a person matching this description in and out of the shop or acting unusual around the area, please contact draw the Artists station on 041 987 4200 or the Garda confidential line on 1800 666 111.
3: We're going to conclude then with a report of a stolen vehicle in Dundalk.
8: Yes, this uh, this car was stolen um, from the Boyle O'Reilly Terrace area of Castletown Road in Dundalk. And this happened between 8pm on the 29th of August and 2am on the 30th of August. Um, the owner of the vehicle was actually woken up by a number of calls on his phone from the Garda station regarding his vehicle. He looked out the window and seen that the car was gone. The owner still had the keys of the car with him. The car that was taken was a grey Toyota Vitz hatchback Registration number 12KE6746, but the great Toyota Vitz hatchback, 12KE6746. This vehicle has since been recovered. However, after it was taken, it was involved in a number of dangerous driving incidents around the Loud area. And guardians and doc are looking to speak to anyone who may have been in the Castletown Road area often talk at between the times it possibly was taken may have seen persons or vehicles acting unusual around the area, or even may have seen this vehicle driving dangerously and have dash cam footage of that, to please contact Dundalk Garda Station on 042 938 8400. Or again,
3: the Garda Confidential Line on one 666 Garda, Laura Rudden of RD Garda Station. Thank you very much indeed. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time in its usual slot next Tuesday. Before we go, the final word on the programme today to a listener in Navin who says, Michael, the old road into Johnstown from Kentstown is 50 kilometres an hour, but almost ignored by... All drivers, changing signs won't make any difference. More speed vans and Garda don't seem to have the time to police the issue, uh, but that's what's needed. Thank you indeed uh, for that. Uh, That's uh, the final word, as I say. That's our programme for today. Maggie Maguire Research, Paul McKenna was in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. (laughs) Bye-bye.